nice to see you guys today. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Mandy. I'm on staff here with Reality. I lead the prayer ministry here. And um, on select holiday weekends, I also teach sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Um, you, may be, you may be able to tell already from the rather sizable chapter that Micah just read that this sermon is not going to have anything to do with Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> just wasn't in the cards for us. Um, but I, am, I would love to pray uh, for Mother's Day and also pray for our time together to get us started. So let me pray for us. Father, we... Um, we thank you for the reminder that you are the giver of life and that you share that with us, Lord, that you share with us the responsibility of um, you know, just being a part of the sustenance of that life in this world, Lord. And we want to thank you specifically for those who um, have stepped up to the very um, sizable and bold call of motherhood, Lord, and we ask for a blessing over them, Lord. We ask that they would feel recognized and celebrated today. We ask that you would be present with them. Lord, we also ask that you would be present with any mothers who are feeling weighty, who are feeling heavy. We ask that you would be with anybody who has a strained relationship with their mother. We ask that you would be with anyone who is feeling weighty because they long to be a mother and they are not. God, we pray for blessing over these people as well, and we just ask that you would minister to them today, Lord. We know that whether um, we are rejoicing or whether we are weeping, you call us to rejoice or weep with one another, and that you do that with us. And so we just thank you that your spirit is present, and that you re rejoice with us, and you celebrate us, Lord, and you also are with us in our heaviness. And God, we just ask the same thing in some ways for the passage that we're reading today, that you would meet us where we are, God. I pray that you would speak to each person here. I pray that though this is um, kind of a dramatic trial scene with Paul, Lord, that you would help us to see why this is in your word and what it has to speak to your church today, God. So yeah, just open our eyes to what you have in this passage, and Holy Spirit, would you come and speak with us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's a strong pivot to Acts 25. All right, so let me start us off with a question. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you just feel stuck? I'm sure most of us remember a time when we felt that way, and maybe some of us might be feeling stuck right now. Maybe you're at a job that drains you, but no other doors are opening up. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you're in a relationship that feels like it's going in circles around and around to the same old problems. Maybe there's some difficult situation in your life that you've been praying over and praying over, but nothing seems to change. When we encounter Paul in Acts 25, his life seems to be kind of stuck in this holding pattern. It's been four chapters since Paul has been placed in custody by Roman officials, all because a certain group of Jewish leaders made these false accusations against him. And since then, we've been watching Paul kind of get passed around from one government official to another. And in last week's passage, it says that Felix, who was the governor of Judea at that time, kept Paul in prison for two years. And not because Paul, Felix believed that Paul was guilty of any crimes, but because he hoped that Paul would bribe him to get out of jail. So eventually, Felix is removed from his office, but the text says that desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So it's two years in prison, he's wrongfully accused, and there's no end in sight. And in the passage we're in today, Acts 25, it seems like not that much is changing. There's this new head honcho in town, this guy Festus, and he realizes that Paul is innocent. In verse 25, Festus says of Paul, I found that he had done nothing deserving death. 
But Festus is not willing to release Paul because he's new to office, and he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of the Jewish leaders who are accusing Paul. The irony is that ancient Rome prided itself on what they called equitus romana, Roman fairness. But very little that's happened to Paul in this story so far seems fair, and it doesn't really seem like justice is a priority. And yet, there is more to this story, because the book of Acts is not the story of Paul, an innocent man at the mercy of corrupt, self-serving Roman rulers. Acts is the story of how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, spreads from Jerusalem to the entire world. So to understand the twists and turns and the roadblocks that we're seeing in the book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves not what is Rome doing, or even what is Paul doing, but what is God doing? And to understand what God is doing here, we really have to look at the bigger picture. So today, we're actually going to zoom out a little bit from Acts 25. And in addition to talking about the text, we're going to retrace part of the story of how Paul arrived at this place and why. Because his journey to Jerusalem and now going forward to Rome is not an accident. And his imprisonment is not an accident. The audience that he receives before governors and kings and now even Caesar is not an accident. One theologian writes this about Acts 25. Paul's trials are not tragedy, but God's sovereign plan to grant opportunities for his gospel in elevated settings. So today I'm going to focus on three main things that I think we can learn from Paul's story. So first, when we feel like we are standing still, God is still working. Secondly, God calls us to cling to the word he's already spoken. And third, God's calling requires resurrection power. So don't worry, I'm going to repeat those. You don't have to remember them. So first, when we feel like we are standing still, God is still working. So Festus, the new governor of Judea, has kind of inherited Paul as a prisoner. And Festus has only been in office for about three days when this faction of Jewish leaders, Paul's enemies, come to meet with him. And the first thing they want, item number one on their agenda, is to bring Paul to Jerusalem. And their ulterior motive is they're plotting to kill Paul. So as a politician, Festus doesn't know all this from what we can tell, but he's in kind of a sticky spot. One commentator writes that a Roman administrator might struggle to balance the interests of justice for an individual and political sensitivity to the local elite, especially if there is potential for unrest. So Festus's job is to keep the peace in his province, and if he didn't, he could get kicked out of office, which is what happened to his predecessor, Felix. So this means that Festus needed to do what he could to stay on the good side of these Jewish leaders. So in verse 9, we say that Festus is wishing to do the Jews a favor. So already we can see how this whole situation could easily go south for Paul. So I want to point out two interesting things here. First, even though Festus is mostly focused on his own political maneuvering, his actions end up protecting Paul. Festus doesn't allow Paul to be relocated until he can hear the case against him. He could have given in to the Jewish leaders to win them over and sent Paul to Jerusalem, but by delaying his case, he has almost definitely saved Paul's life. And secondly, Paul's enemies have actually done him a favor without realizing it. One commentator writes that provincial prisoners were often lost in the bureaucratic machinery. They could spend months or years or longer in custody just awaiting discovery. So Paul could have easily languished in prison for years just due to neglect if his opponents hadn't called that new governor's attention to him right away. 
So at the beginning of Acts 25, Paul might seem stuck, stalled, unable to move his story forward. But all the while, God has been moving these pieces in place to protect Paul and to get him to the next phase of his journey. I know for me, sometimes when there are obstacles in my path, that becomes pretty much all that I can see. And I've started reflecting on it, and I think part of the reason for me is that I just tend to rely on my own strength to shift those obstacles. I would rather throw all of my energy into trying to move a mountain than to just wait. Because waiting makes you feel helpless. Waiting leaves you alone with your thoughts and feelings and fears. But story after story in the Bible reveals that the waiting is where we often meet God. Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting takes courage. It takes courage for Paul to endure these injustices, to sit in chains for years, not just trying to desperately find a way out, but waiting and trusting that God will move. So on the surface, it looks like Paul is at the mercy of this new administration, of whatever political games that Festus is playing. But the bigger reality is that Paul is and always has been in the palm of God's hand. And God's plans are no match for human obstacles. So while Paul is waiting to learn what his fate will be, God is busy opening a door to Rome, which means new opportunities to share the gospel. And that is the burning desire of Paul's heart. So even when we feel like we are standing still, God is still working. So the second thing we can take from this story is that God calls us to cling to the word that he's already spoken. So the Jewish leaders are trying to assassinate Paul. Festus is angling to figure out how to stay within the bounds of Roman law without upsetting the Jews. And in the midst of this political dance, Paul does something unexpected. He appeals to Caesar. In other words, he asked to go on trial before the ruler of the entire Roman Empire. Now, this is a very strange chess move for a couple of reasons. First, Paul has told this story to several rulers and counselors, like he's kind of given a testimony before them, but he hasn't actually been on trial yet. So there's no official verdict that's been reached on what's going to become of Paul. And as a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to request a trial before Caesar's court, but normally, a prisoner would do that and make an appeal after they received a sentence and not before. So this is a risky move. Paul is kind of saying, I don't wanna be tried before this lower court. I wanna go on trial before the highest court on the empire, even though their verdict will be absolutely final because there's no one else to appeal to. That's what I want. Why on earth would Paul do that at this point? Well, unlike most prisoners that Rome has seen, Paul's ultimate goal is not to be freed. Paul's goal is to follow the will of God and to share the good news of Jesus anywhere that he can. And God has been guiding Paul very clearly. So if we look back in Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus and he had this successful ministry going on, but we learn that Paul had already resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he says, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul has had these two cities on his radar for months, years, timeline's unclear. But in Acts 20, Paul is finally heading to Jerusalem, but all the Christians that he's meeting along the way are basically trying to stop him. They're prophesying over him, telling him that only trials await him, and basically saying, Paul, don't go. And Paul responds, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, 
not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's commitment to Jesus does not shield him from suffering, and he knows it. He's compelled to Jerusalem by this God-given sense of purpose, and it lands him right in jail. He's at the mercy of these fickle authorities. His enemies are chomping at the bit to murder him, and it's not really clear if he's going to make it out of there or make it out of there alive. This is what I want us to see. The most important thing that Paul can do in this situation is to believe in the word that God has already spoken to him. God has called him to testify in Jerusalem and in Rome. And recently, we read more in Acts 23, that after Paul was imprisoned, God confirmed this calling again. One night, Paul sees a vision where the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So God has confirmed this calling again. And Paul knows that if God wanted to send an angel to break him out of prison, he could, because that has literally happened to Paul before. But right now, God's calling means that he has to wait. He has to stay put. He has to remember that he's in chains for the sake of the gospel. So in spite of the conspiracy to kill him, in spite of the fact that he's being used as kind of this political pawn for those who are only concerned about their own power, Paul has to cling to what God has already spoken. He has to believe that God's will is going to prevail because Paul's reality is not shaped by his circumstances. It's shaped by what God says is true. And if God says that Paul is going to testify in Rome, his enemies can plot and scheme all they want. Paul is going to Rome. As followers of Jesus, sometimes all we can do is cling to the word that God has already spoken to us. And maybe there's someone here who needs to hear that today. Maybe God has spoken into your life somehow. Maybe you went through a process of prayer and discernment and you took a step of faith and you decided to go in the direction that you believed God was calling you in, but now you feel stuck. Now you feel overwhelmed. Now you're not sure where this road is headed or if you even want to be on it. Everyone has a different story, so there's no way that I could make some kind of grand statement that would apply to everyone in every situation, but I would encourage you to consider this in light of Paul's story. What if the thing that looks like an obstacle right now is actually an opportunity? What if a situation that looks like a prison cell is actually a platform for the gospel? Now, some of us may not have a specific sense of calling from God right now, but if you're a follower of Jesus, God has spoken a word over your life. In fact, he has spoken lots of words because the Bible is full of them. And even if we're not sure exactly where our path is leading, God, Jesus calls us every day to do things like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do not be anxious about your life, pray without giving up, go and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Some of God's words to us are things that we're called to do, and then other things are things that we're called to believe about God, like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Believing these things, living into these things, requires our full attention. The call of God is challenging, and it'll ask for everything that we have to give. 
but we are far from alone because the transformation that God calls us to be a part of can only happen through his Holy Spirit working in and through us. In God's spirit, we are given a helper who empowers us to do things that we might not have thought possible, to speak boldly, to love fearlessly, to heal, to forgive, to keep on hoping. And this is a helpful reminder that the story of Acts isn't trying to set this impossible standard for like a level of faith that we could never possibly reach. The story of Acts is meant to compel us to follow the spirit of God and to trust that he will be with us and he will sustain us no matter what happens next. We don't necessarily need a specific word from God as much as we need a clear sense of mission. And sometimes it's tempting to think, reading stories like these, well, if only I could get like one of those angelic visitations, that would really take care of everything. Like then I could have faith, then I could follow God, it would be easier to follow God. But if you have had an experience where God spoke in some way, through answering a prayer, opening a door, maybe by providing wisdom through your community, or maybe even a prophetic word, Even when God speaks, it doesn't necessarily make everything clear, and it doesn't necessarily make it easy to follow God. Uh, I can share an example from my own life. Maybe that'll be a little bit more relatable than Paul. We'll see. Um, But uh, some of you have heard this story, but I moved to Boston uh, about nine years ago to join this church plant um, when Reality Boston was just about a year old. I'd first visited Boston as part of a prayer tour, so we had all these teams that came out. I was part of a team from Reality Los Angeles that came out to pray with the church planters. And then I thought I was just gonna go bye, goodbye and like go home. Um, I definitely did not think at the time that I was going to be moving to Boston. I was living in LA. I had just very recently decided not to pursue a career in the entertainment industry, which is what I had been investing in for years. I had realized it wasn't for me. I had a day job to pay the bills, but I was really unhappy there, and I felt really stuck and unsure of my future. So I began praying for God to speak to me, and because I was young and naive, I prayed this very dangerous prayer. God, I'll do anything you want me to if you'll just show me. I don't know what I was thinking. In my mind, I was praying for a new job, for like a new career path, and it didn't occur to me to clarify that. Um, But instead, God began turning my attention toward Boston. Boston would come up randomly in conversations. I would just like meet people who had lived there. I would feel compelled to pray for the church plant. All these memories from my time in Boston kept getting stirred up in these different ways until finally I was forced to take the idea seriously. Much to my surprise, when I began asking my friends in my community to pray for me, they all said, we can see this for you. This makes sense. So that was terrifying. But a turning point for me in my decision to go to Boston, to come to Boston, was when God began to put something else on my heart. The phrase that kept coming up for me was the sense that he was calling me to build up his church. That was all I knew, just those few words, to build up his church. And even though I didn't really know what that meant or what that might look like, those words really stirred something in my heart because the church had changed my life. Uh, My community in LA had basically raised me in the faith. I was a new Christian when I came there. And the years that I spent in LA, I just saw people living out their faith and following Jesus with this wholehearted commitment that just completely reshaped the way that I saw my life. So I loved the church. And when I thought back to my trip to Boston on the prayer tour, we had walked the streets and learned about the city, and we had just prayed and prayed for God to do something great here, to save people, to heal people from anxiety and addiction, and to free them from selfish lives lived for their own glory, and to use his church to transform the city. 
So ultimately, I realized, I don't know what's waiting for me in Boston, but I think I have to go because I made a decision to follow Jesus, and he has shown me that he uses his church to change lives. So if I can be a part of that, even if I'm scared, I have to go. I have to say yes. So that was nine years ago for me. At the time, I'd been a Christian for maybe four and a half, five years, and I didn't know then that there was going to be a place for me here to become a lay leader with our community group ministry or our prayer ministry. I didn't know I was going to end up in seminary. I didn't know I was going to start working for the church, and I certainly did not know that I was going to start preaching. <laughs> so <laughs> blame Rashad for that. Um, <laughs> but when it came to it, I didn't do any of these things because I felt capable or brave. I did them because Jesus has continued to grow in my heart a love for his church. And when he calls me to serve his people, I can't say no. I don't even want to say no. Even when I'm afraid, the words that still come out of my mouth are, here I am, Lord, send me. So when we look at the story of Paul, I think it's really easy to think that he's different, that he's not like us, that he's like this varsity-level Christian and the rest of us are just trying to stay in the game. But we forget that everything that Paul does is motivated by what Jesus has done for him. His heart has been captured by the love of Christ and he has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that when we first met Paul in the book of Acts, he was a self-righteous religious leader who was willing to murder those who threatened his worldview and his way of life. Before Jesus, Paul had a lot in common with the Jewish leaders who are right now conspiring to kill him. But then he met the risen Christ. He experienced the conviction of his sins and he was offered a second chance. God forgave him and chose him and that made all the difference. And Paul did not become this bold missionary that we see in Acts 25 overnight. In fact, about 13 years passed from the time that Paul was converted to the time that he began his missionary journeys. And even after that, God spent years shaping Paul and strengthening his faith. If we look back just through Acts, Paul has seen people being healed from diseases. He's cast out demons. He's survived multiple riots and almost being stoned to death. He's been released from prison by angels, and he's preached in cities all across the Roman Empire and seen people from every ethnic and cultural background believe in the good news of Jesus. So he hasn't just been told about the power and grace of God, he has experienced it. So Paul has spent years walking with a God who brings healing and hope, and he is driven by a desire that more people would come to know Jesus, and that desire is more powerful than the obstacles that seem to stand in the way. And that leads us to our final point, which is that God's calling requires resurrection power. So if we look at Acts 25 again, towards the end, Festus receives a gift from King, or sorry, a visit, he doesn't receive a gift, a visit from King Agrippa, and he tells the king about Paul. So he says, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This description is almost funny to me because it's kind of like Festus is saying, so these Jewish leaders have been making it sound like this guy Paul is like public enemy number one to the Roman Empire and he's like dangerous and crafty and he like kicks kittens and never tips waiters. <laughs> but it turns out they're just arguing about whether this other guy named Jesus is alive or dead. So, <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? These Jewish leaders say Jesus is dead, Paul says he's alive, clearly only one of them can be right, and it kind of feels like it shouldn't be that hard to figure out. But th there's a reason why this is such a point of contention. 
The question of whether Jesus has really been raised from the dead is the most important question we'll ever answer. Because if the answer is yes, it changes absolutely everything. If, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead, then he is the Son of God, and we are called to respond to everything that he taught. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Reason for God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So Paul isn't just preaching a few novel ideas. Paul is preaching about resurrection power, and his enemies view this as a threat. Because Jesus' resurrection proclaims that humanity is dead in their sins, but Jesus is offering us new life. So now we're faced with a decision to stay mired in our old ways, going down with a sinking ship, or to stretch out our hand and grab onto Jesus, trusting that he's going to save us. If Jesus has been resurrected, everything has to change. Our values have to change, our lifestyles need to change, even our religion needs to change. Jesus is swapping out the old wineskins of Judaism for new wineskins, and it's offensive to people. Because resurrection power does not leave things as they are. It does not leave corruption in our government, and injustice in our justice systems, or jealousy and violence in our hearts. This world is dead in sin, weighed down by its own brokenness, and the resurrection tells us that the solution requires more than self-help, self-improvement, or human-powered religiosity. What we need is new life. What's required is revival. And this is important for us to remember. God's mission is not possible without resurrection power. Everything that Paul is doing is not possible if the Holy Spirit is not empowering him. Earlier, I quoted just a handful of things that Jesus calls us to do, like love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do not worry. How do you even do that? <laughs> like, table everything else that the Bible says for just a moment. How do you even do those three things? <laughs> that would take everything inside of you. Something supernatural literally needs to happen inside of us for this to work. And in Paul's own letter that he writes to the Christians in Rome later on, he says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And that is the only thing that makes the mission of God possible. So what we see in Paul's story, I really want to land on this. What we see in Paul's story is that God will sometimes lead us to the end of our capacity. Our influence, our cleverness, our rhetoric can't get us to the next step. God brings us to the edge of like this chasm between what we're capable of and what God is calling us to do, and we can't get across on our own. Have you experienced this? Like, can you imagine this in your mind eye, mind's eye? Like, you're looking across this abyss, and it's a mile wide and a mile deep, and God is calling you forward, and you're like, no, Lord, I literally can't. Like, we've actually reached my outer limits, and I can't go any farther than this. Sometimes God will lead you to the end of your ability to change things, but he does this on purpose, so that when you make it to the other side, you will recognize that for the miracle that it is. All right, let me say it again. I'm going to say it a little bit differently. God will sometimes lead you to the end of yourself, to the end of your capacity, so that you have to rely on him to follow his calling. And when you do, you will recognize what God did for the miracle that it is. God's calling requires God's power 
to overcome obstacles and to bring new life. And that is what Paul is preaching. And it's because of Paul's faith and his experience of Jesus that he was able to patiently endure his chains, that he's able to face Caesar, that he's able to surrender to the will of God until the very end because he knows the gospel is worth it. It is worth enduring all of that political nonsense. It's worth giving up his life. And this is not lip service. It's not just Paul. I just spent the last four months in a church history class, and the generations of Christians throughout the past have given their lives for the possibility that others would put their hope in Jesus because they know that that was the only thing that could turn our sickness into healing and our desperation into hope and our suffering and our mourning into joy. The gospel of Jesus is worth everything you can give, but it will always give you back more in return. But Jesus will ask you for your life. And that's why many of us still resist the gospel. Jesus is offering us healing with open hands, but we'd rather have control. We'd rather not surrender. We'd prefer it if we could walk with Jesus on the sunny days, but not on the days when the sky has turned dark and the crowds are shouting, crucify him. When the road ahead looks rocky, are we willing to keep walking with Jesus? As I've been studying Acts this week, I just keep thinking that the life that Paul is leading, his years spent on mission and in prison, they would not be worth it if Christianity was just a self-help message. If Jesus' teachings are just something you can dabble in whenever you have time, or if he's just a preference, like the one that you like best out of a set of equally valid options, it just wouldn't be worth it. Following Jesus is too hard. He's constantly challenging the selfishness in our hearts, and he's calling us into a deeper life of sacrifice. But Jesus is not a hobby, and he is not a philosophy. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus' teachings become so challenging that people begin to abandon him. And at one point, he asks his 12 disciples, his closest friends, if they want to leave too. But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, I'm no Paul the Apostle, for I tell that, but I would not be standing here in front of you if I wasn't convinced that following Jesus was worth it. That he is the Savior of the world. And I know there are a lot of other people in this room who wouldn't be here either if we didn't believe that Jesus had the words of eternal life, if we hadn't experienced his resurrection power propelling us to do things and to overcome things that we thought were impossible, if our lives hadn't been changed by the gospel. And if that's you, take heart. Whatever you're facing now, God is still with you. And if you've not yet experienced Jesus as the only way, as truth embodied, as the giver of resurrection life, he's calling you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we just want to say, Lord, that you are the way, that you are the truth, and that you are the life. And we are just asking you for courage. We're asking you for courage to go one step further. We're asking you for courage to face that gaping chasm between where we are and where you're calling us. We're asking you for courage to face everyday life. We're asking you for courage to keep pressing in and living out and proclaiming the gospel. Lord, we know that we need you. We know that this is not possible without you. So Holy Spirit, would you just breathe new life into us? Lord, would you help us to turn our hearts and our eyes towards you and to just surrender all that we are and all that we have and to trust that 
the story of Paul is not just for Paul, that it is possible for us to become people who can literally be in a jail cell and to be singing hymns and praising your name and asking you to use us and believing that that is better than what we would have had if we had not followed you. Lord, that is a big ask and we know that, but we're saying only you are capable. Only you are capable of getting us through or only you are capable of calling us forward. Only you are capable of helping us bridge that gap between who we are and what you're calling us towards. Lord, you wanna change us. You wanna heal us. You wanna transform the city and we believe those things. And so we are asking God for you to move, for you to continue to work in your church throughout the city. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the way that your word fills us with hope and fills us with new life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.